The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is HealthGig. Brad Meltzer is a New York Times best-selling American novelist, nonfiction writer, TV show creator, and comic book author. He has also written an amazing series of short biographies of people for young readers to look up to. More than that, Brad is a really good friend. So Brad, welcome to Health Gig. So good to be here. I'm so sorry Trisha's not here. She's watching wolves in Wyoming. That's a passion of hers. But I'm glad I could be here. And I just thought it would be fun to start the conversation if you would tell everyone how you came into our lives. You know, it's so funny is everyone always thinks it's from all the literacy work we do through the Barbara Bush Foundation, of course. But it was none of that. It was actually with the craziest and best fan letter I ever got in my life, which came from your dad. And he wrote me a letter from out of the blue. And it said, Barbara and I love your books. And would you sign a copy for us? We would love to have a signed copy. And Dora, my first thought was, this has to be a practical joke. (laughs) I I did not think it was real. And, And the reason I thought that is my first job when I was 18 years old was as an intern for the Senate Judiciary Committee. When I was an intern, I used to always work with the senator's pen signing machines. And I used to take the Senate Judiciary stationery. I would take the pen signing machine that the senators would sign with, and I would write to all my friends and tell them they were being deported. And, <laughs> and I'm from Miami, so they believed it. And the truth was, I thought someone was playing that joke on me. I'm like, some staffers using this to get a free book. So I called the phone number that was at the bottom of the stationery. And I said, hi, um, there's some staffer there that wants a free book. I'm happy to send it. And whoever it was, God bless, maybe it was Gene Becker or someone else said, oh, you got the president's letter. And I said, <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. And they said to me at the time, no, it's real. You know, we do that. And I was just starting a book and was fascinated that your dad was the most powerful person on the entire planet one day. And the next day had to stop at red lights like the rest of us. I wrote him back. I said, here's, you know, obviously I'm honored to give you a book and thank you so much for writing. I said, but I'd love to see what your life is like. I'd love to see what it's like when you leave the presidency. That was more fascinating to me than being in it. And again, to show you his kindness, he said to me, why don't you come to Houston and spend a week with Barbara and I? I spent nearly a week in Houston with them, in their house, in the car. The Secret Service was like, who is this guy? What was I doing there? They were like, you're not riding with the service. You're riding with us. We went to dinners with us. And we just wound up hitting it off and having a great time together. And that's really what started everything after that. You have been just the best supporter of the Barbara Bush Foundation, which is so appreciated, Brad. You were involved with mom in that. And then I read an article when you wrote about dad at the end of his life. Can you tell that story? This was my favorite moment with your dad by far and one of the most amazing moments of my own life. And what happened was at the time when your dad was really sick and no one knew it back then, but they were bringing in some of his favorite authors to read to him on basically what was becoming his deathbed. And I got the call and I was in Kennebunkport and they said, we'd love you to come in and read to the president. And I said, oh, of course I'd be honored to be there. And I walk in 
And the Secret Service explained to me, they said, listen, he's really sick at this point. He's sleeping most of the day. He's going to fall asleep about five minutes, 10 minutes after you start reading because he's just sleeping most of the day now. I said, you got it. I'm on it. I'll be here. So I walk into the room, Secret Service leave, and now it's just, and I can see what I'm getting into. I know this is the end. It's just myself. It's my wife. It's your dad, President Bush, and his service dog, Sully. And that's it. And I can see what kind of shape he's in. And on his desk, I should say, there's a stack of books. One of the books on the stack is my book called The First Conspiracy about the secret plot to kill George Washington. And he and President Clinton have both given me blurbs on the book. It's an early edition of the book. It looked like it had been read, I can't tell you how many times, over and Mm -hmm. over and over. And I said, sir, you want to read this book? And he says, "Mm mm-hmm, because he can't speak at this point. He's just, "Mm -hmm," mm-hmm, or "Uh uh-uh. I start reading to him, and sure enough, five, ten minutes in, he falls asleep. And I think to myself, well, I'm just going to finish this chapter and be on my way. I'm very happy to be here. And the section that I brought to read to him was a section from the book where George Washington presents the Declaration of Independence and has it read to his troops for the very first time. And your dad's sleeping. And then I get to those words, those words we all know. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And in that moment, your dad's eyes pop open and he is wide awake. It's like the Declaration of Independence is an infusion for him. And he locks on me and I get to the end of the chapter. He's wide awake. I say, sir, you want to read another chapter? Mm Mm-hmm. I get to the end of that chapter. You want to read another, sir? Mm-hmm. And another? Mm-hmm. And another? Mm-hmm. And instead of being there for five or ten minutes, he keeps telling me he wants to go to another chapter. So I'm there for a full hour. Um, by the time I'm done, I say goodbye to him. I don't want to keep him longer than that. He's just tired. And, you know, I say goodbye to him. I know I'm never going to see him again. But I thank him for what he's done for me, what he's done for literacy, what he's done for our country. And, Dora, to be able to have that moment where I'm reading about the very first president of these United States to at that point, who was the oldest living president of the United States was one of the most humbling moments of my life. And I remember when I went to the funeral, there was one word that everyone kept using, even all of us who were sitting in the pews, as well as the people who were speaking there. It was one word kept being used over and over, and it was this word, decency. Decency. And yes, it was because he was a decent man, but I think we're just at this time in our culture right now where we're all starving for decency again. Yeah. And I love that your dad always represented that. So sweet. I I wept when I read that story. <laughs> but anyway, enough about all that. So you were brought up in Brooklyn and Miami and you live in Miami now. Tell us a little bit about that and about your family. I grew up my dad lost his job when he was 39 years old. And my dad was always terrible with money. He had no money. He had $1,200 to his name. He had no job, no place to live, no prospects. And it wasn't one of those moments you were just scared about, you know, having what you're going to pay your bills with. But it was one of those moments where we were really scared about safety. Like, where are we going to live? What are we going to do? And my dad said it was the do-over of life, as if it was a big game. He said, we're going to start over from scratch. And he drove us down from Brooklyn, New York, drove us down in his car to Miami, Florida, which is where my grandmother lived at the time. He used to give a fake address so that I could go to the nicer, wealthier public school. The school that I was supposed to go to wasn't a great school. So he gave a fake address. So for four years, I went to high school giving a fake address. No report cards ever came home. No grades were ever sent home. It was great (laughs) for me. But it was there in ninth grade that my life got changed because my ninth grade English teacher was a woman named Sheila Spicer. And Miss Spicer changed my life with three words. She said to me, you can write. 
I was like, well, everyone can write. She said, no, no, you know what you're doing. She tried to put me in the honors class and I had some sort of conflict. So she said, here's what we're going to do. You're going to sit in the corner for the entire year, ignore everything I do on the blackboard, ignore every homework assignment I give. You're going to do the honors work instead. And what she was really saying, Dora, was you're going to thank me later. And sure enough, a decade later, I went back to her classroom. I knocked on the door. My first book was coming out. She said, can I help you? I said, my name is Brad Meltzer. I wrote this book and it's for you. And she starts crying. And I said, why are you crying? And she said, you know, I was going to retire this year because I didn't think I was having an impact anymore. And I said, are you kidding me? I said, you have 30 students. We have one teacher. And this woman changed my life, arguably one of the most important people in my professional life and had no idea of her impact on my life. And that was really one of the main reasons I became a writer is because she was that first person who told me beside my family that I was good at something. So that was my start as being a writer. And then from there, I went to the University of Michigan. I went to Columbia Law School for law school. This great entrepreneur in Boston named Eli Siegel said to me that he was going to take me under his wing. He said, don't go to law school. Come work for me in Boston. I'll be your mentor. I'll teach you the ways of business. I'll I'll show you how things are done. And he says, if you love it, you stay. And if you hate it, you leave with some money in your pocket. And I thought, that's a good deal. So I moved my stuff to Boston. I move everything to Boston. And the week I get to Boston, Eli leaves the job. My boss leaves the job. And I thought, oh, no is right. I thought, oh, my gosh, I've wrecked my life. I said, I've wrecked my life. So I did what all of us do in situations where we think we wrecked our lives. I said, I'm going to write a novel. (laughs) What all of us would do in those situations. Yeah, exactly. And I wrote my first novel. My first novel got me 24 rejection letters. There were only 20 publishers. I got 24 rejection letters. (laughs) How does that happen? I think some people were writing me twice to make sure I got the point. (laughs) But I said I was young and I was stubborn. I said, if they don't like that book, I'm going to write another. And if they don't like that book, I'm going to write another. And the week after I got my 23rd and 24th rejection letters, the week I started my next novel which became the 10th justice. It was my first published work. And that was my start. So that's encouraging for people who want to become writers and are getting rejection letters. Just keep going, keep at it. That's exactly right. So what's your life like as a writer? What do you do every day? Yeah, you know, it's so funny. Everyone always thinks, you know, writers' lives are like, we just drink margaritas as we sit on the beach. And no, am I, I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> what, writing, what the writing life is like is like any other job. It's work. It's work every single day. The, the writing life and being a writer, to me, building a book is like building a sandcastle, one grain of sand at a time. And on the first day, you know, I always say, if you write a page a day, you'll have a book in a year. But what most people do is they say, you know, oh, here comes Monday. I'm going to write two pages Tuesday. I'm kind of busy today. And Tuesday comes around like, I'll write three pages Wednesday. You have to just do it every day. You have to work and sit your butt in the seat and write. To me, that's what the writing process is. On the first day, when I have a page, I'm like, gosh, I have nothing. It's like one grain of sand, plink. And then on Tuesday, I write that second page. I still got nothing, but I got two pages, plink, plink. And then somewhere along the way, you got 50, and then you have 100, and then you have 300, and then you have 400, and then there's a book that's there. But it's just little by little pushing that little boulder up the hill, um, or all those sand grains up the hill until they eventually get something bigger. What makes you unique is the way you do your research. So talk about that. Your dad is the perfect example. I've been very lucky in my life. I've had obviously wonderful people who have taken me under their wing and said, I'll show you my life. But I really do believe if I called just about anybody on the planet, if you got a phone call tomorrow and someone said, I just want to see what your life is like, I'm writing a book, 
It's all fiction, so I'm never going to use real quotes. I'm never going to quote you on anything. But I just love to get my character right because, you know, in Hollywood movies, they always get everything wrong. Can I just spend five to ten minutes talking to you? Ninety percent of the people listening to this will all say absolutely. And it happened with the Secret Service very early on. I walked into a Secret Service agent's office, and I thought, he's never going to help me. It's called the Secret Service. The word secret is in the title, right? They're never going to help me. <laughs> and I sat down in his office. I'll never forget. And he said to me, Brad, I read your first book. I liked it a lot. I like what you do, and I want to help you. And he became one of my closest friends. And it was through him that I met other people at the White House who was there. I got a letter from President Clinton, of course, got one from your dad. And I was able to say to them, can I come in and see what your life is like? I can make up whatever I want, right? I, I can say it's fiction. I can do whatever I want. I can say that there are secret tunnels that run below the White House and they go all the way down to Orlando and they connect to Disney World, right? <laughs> and you would laugh and I would laugh and we'd all say, haha, it's not funny because we know, we know that that's nonsense. But if I tell you that you're in the ground floor court of the White House, follow the red carpet to the statue of Winston Churchill that's on your left. And between those, there's two statues there. Walk, there's a little door there. Open that door. You'll see all these chairs stacked all the way up to the ceiling because that's where they store the chairs for the state dinner. Now walk out the other door on the opposite side of that room and you'll smell flowers in the air because the White House flower shop's right there. You're going to pass the bowling alley on your left. The ceiling's going to kind of come arcing down a little bit because that's where the air conditioning and the HVAC equipment is above your head. And as you walk down, you're going to hit a dead end, make a right-hand turn, you'll see a steel metal door. That's the entrance to the tunnels below the White House. That's where they brought Dick Cheney on 9-11. That's where all the presidents go. And it's not a secret tunnel as much as it's a bomb shelter. That's what it mm -hmm. really was. I can tell you where the bomb shelter leads out, but I'll ruin chapter 36 of the first council. Um, <laughs> Don't tell us. So you'll see it in the book. But, but now when I say that to you, you know, and I know you know, but yeah. everyone listening knows that's real. We just yeah. know. We have better BS meters than any generation before, although sometimes I question our ability to find facts these days. Um, yeah, <laughs> but we do know, you know, for the most part, when someone tells you something completely outlandish in a book, you know, they made it up. And when you see something real and even in a fictional thriller, you know, you're like, you that's real. It. You feel it. Right. Exactly. You sense yeah. it. And so to me, I always want to, I always want to get that right. So even when, whether it's talking to your dad or a secret service agent or someone in the FBI or any other acronym agency, I always just will give them the book and say, tell me what I got wrong. Tell me what I got right. And it always makes it a uh, turn for the better. So do you do the research as you go along in the book, as you get to the part where you need to research, or do you do the research first about the whole book and then write the book? Usually I start with just a whole area that I'm just curious about. So in your dad's case, I was obsessed with former presidents. I was like, what's that like? What is it yeah. like to know that you've had the greatest job you'll ever have and you're never going to have it again? Like, what does that feel like emotionally? If I told you today, you know, you peaked and it's never going to be as good and everything is downhill from here. I just was obsessed with that idea. And so I start researching that and trying to figure out. And then I see there's a whole world there. I see that there's Gene Becker and there's all his staff. And then I'm like, now I have characters because I can see that there are people that work around you that are just amazingly wonderful. Now I have a family to build around my imaginary president. And now I go, wait a minute, I'm less interested with the president than I am about that family. And suddenly the whole book, what I find interesting is what drives the novel. And then I'll start writing. But as mm -hmm. I'm writing that book, I'll have a scene where I'll say, okay, I got to be in the president's private dining room. I want to be upstairs, but I don't know what it's like. Let me call someone and find out. So when I get to that scene, I'll say, hey, by the mm -hmm. way, what's it look like up there? What should I put in there? What details should I put? So the research never ends. The funny yeah. part is when the research sometimes will just completely take a turn. I, I remember writing, this one also involves your dad. I remember writing to your dad 
I was obsessed with, I found out that Thomas Jefferson had used a secret code to communicate. And I was obsessed with that idea that a president could have his own secret code. And I had read also that Ronald Reagan had put a secret note in the Oval Office desk and left it for your dad. And he wrote, don't let the turkeys get you down. And he put it in the Oval Office desk and your dad got that note. And then, you know, the rumor was, is your dad left a note for President Clinton who left one for, you know, for your brother and, and on and on it went. And I wrote to your dad and I said, you know, I'd love to use something like that. I, and I said to him, could you leave another kind of message in that note to pass to a president? Like, would that work? And just for the plot, I was trying to figure it out. And all of a sudden, I get a note that comes up through email and it says, the president wants you to have this. He had released to me for the very first time his secret letter that he had left for President Clinton. He gave it to me. And I remember at the time, his biographer was like, why'd you give it to Meltzer? I'm the biographer. Why, I, put, I put a book on him. Why'd you give it him? I wasn't even asking for it. I was just saying, can you do this hypothetically? And he sent it to me. And then I, I asked Gene and they said, you can release it. We want you to have it and read it out to everyone. I said, oh, are you sure? And they said, yep. And that's, if you've read that note as all of us have, the reason it got out is because he gave it to me. And the funny part was when he sent me the note, I thought it was, I'm like, oh my gosh, you put a secret message in here. So I started like, you know, reading all the letters, <laughs> checking Freemason codes, trying to see if the first letter of every word spelled out, I hate you, Bill. I was like, what does it say? <laughs> um, but as I told President Clinton when I, we were laughing about it, of course, it was just perfectly your father, which was just generous and kind and saying, yes. you know, we all are cheering for you. And, you know, you're yes. the president now. And it was so beautiful. And he was giving me, as he always did, an answer that only he could give me. That letter recently went around the internet again. It goes around every election now. I, I, really but I, if you look back to where it came out, I literally read it out loud on Good Morning America is where he had me do it. And I just was like, you got it. And I said to him, I thought it was a private thing. I said, well, I don't want And they said, no, 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 we want it out. And I don't know if they just never found it or they didn't know where it was, but he had written a copy. And of course, when he wrote his letters, he kept a copy for himself. So, pre yes. so President Clinton had the original, but your dad was yes. smart enough to have the actual content of it. So that was how. So, so when you read nice. it, just know it came out in the name of good, on, honest fiction. You do the research before and throughout. What's your day like? I mean, when do you write? Do you write in the morning or do you write in the afternoon? I usually write better at night, truthfully, but I have kids. I have three kids and I don't want, I want to be a good yes. dad. And I want to be there. So I don't write at night anymore. Once the kids were born, I stopped. I now treat it like a job. I'm sitting at my desk somewhere between 9.30 and 10. I try to be writing by 9.30 or 10. I mm -hmm. write almost straight till 2.30. I don't take lunch until 2.30. Once I take lunch, I just tend to... Maybe when I was younger, I would keep going, but now I just tend to have to do other things. I'll, that's when I'll do, and that's why when you and I were even planning this podcast, I was like, afternoon, because that's when I'll do any interviews and, and calls and mm -hmm. meetings, mm -hmm. but I really try to protect that time because that's when I can kind of have my one charge. Once I eat, I get tired, but that's, and then yeah. basically that's the day, you know, meetings and other things, we, you know, for our kids' TV show, for the kids' books, everything else will go in the afternoon. You also have written nonfiction books and you've got a new one. The Nazi, the Nazi conspiracy. Yeah. conspiracy. Yeah. So tell us about that. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's a so, moment in time. Yeah. And th th this is, these are true stories. So I, I told you about it. We did the first conspiracy about the secret plot to kill George Washington. We did the Lincoln conspiracy about the plot to kill Abraham Lincoln, the true plot at the start of his presidency, not John Wilkes Booth, but this was the Baltimore plot as Abraham Lincoln was being sworn in as our 16th president. There were a group of white supremacists who tried to murder him as he came through Baltimore. And we told that story. But the Nazi conspiracy is the newest one, and it's about a secret plot to kill FDR and Stalin and Churchill at the height of World War II. And it's an amazing moment. It's all true. It's nonfiction. There's you know, 30 pages of footnotes in the book. 
I write it with my same person I always write these with, Josh Mensch. And to paint the picture, it's the first moment where President Roosevelt, where Winston Churchill, and where Joseph Stalin are meeting for the first time together, face-to-face. The big three are getting together in World wow. War II. It's 1943. It's in Tehran, Iran, of all places. They all fly across the globe and, and get there. And FDR's motorcade is coming down the center of the city. And everyone is, of course, craning their necks and peering and waving, trying to wave at the president because the president of the United States has come all the way across the globe. They want to see him. It's a big deal back then. And they're all waving to the president. What none of them know is that is not the president in the motorcade. It's a Secret Service decoy. The real FDR is across town. He's ducked down and hiding in the back of a beat-up sedan that's racing through the side streets because they're worried that there's a Nazi assassin who's about to murder him. And I just ruined chapter one of the Nazi conspiracy. But that's, (laughs) that is literally chapter one. It opens with that. And what you see is this amazing story of how close all of history came to being changed if this assassination plot took place and they were able to do this triple assassination on FDR and Stalin and Churchill. But why did they meet in Tehran? Because Joseph Stalin said, we're meeting in Tehran. And FDR originally said, listen, here, I'm going to take a ruler. We're going to measure equidistant points, and we'll pick a spot where all of us travel equal time. And Stalin said, I'm not doing that. He said, okay, what about we do Alaska? It's close to you. It's close. No, I'm not doing that. He picked Tehran because at the time, we were sending munitions. We were sending weapons. The Nazis had invaded the Soviet Union. Stalin was like, we're getting our butts kicked here. We need your help. And we had started sending weapons to them, but he was like, we need an invasion. You need to come and help us. Basically do what is the invasion of Normandy. The way we were getting them weapons was through Tehran. Tehran had a railroad that they had control of. And Stalin knew that Tehran was good for a number of reasons. One, they controlled the railroad there. So they had the security. Two, they had their own private security forces, them and the British, both in Tehran. Three, he also thought that the desert setting would be really good for keeping a secret the fact that no one would see them there. And he was right about all those things. And he said, I'm losing a million people here. You guys have had Pearl Harbor, but I'm losing a million people regularly. And if I leave my country and I go really far, I'm going to lose even more. So I can't go that far. Meet me in Tehran. And FDR said, we got to go to Tehran. So you have a new thriller out, The Lightning Rod. Yeah. So the lightning rod. So let, let me set you this one. This you know, everyone always says, where do you get your ideas from? And I'll, I'll show you yes. how my brain works for this one. So I was always obsessed with this opening idea and it drove me crazy. So it it opens up with a guy pulls up to a fancy steak restaurant and he goes to the valet and he gives his car keys to the valet to park the car and the valet takes the car keys. But instead of driving the car to the valet spot, he hits the little GPS button on the steering wheel and the valet says the magic words into the GPS. He says, go home. And now the man's car plots a route to the man's house. The valet has his car keys. He's also got his house keys that are on there. Because this is not a valet parking job. This is a robbery. And he drives to the man's house. He uses the house keys to get inside the house. And as he walks into the house, there's a man waiting for him who says, did you really think we didn't know what you were doing? And he's got a gun. (gasps) And this is not a robbery at all. This is a trap. The man in the house shoots our valet robber. There's another person there who winds up dead. Their bodies go to our hero, Zig, who's the hero of the book. And I just ruined chapter one of the lightning rod for you. But that idea (laughs) came from all the times I went to a valet restaurant and I would hand those car keys over and think, what is preventing this guy from just going to my house? And for, I'm not joking, a decade that would just over and over roll in my head until I finally said, you know what, that would be a good scene for a book. And the lightning rod was born. 
Oh my gosh, that's so true because when I go to valet park, I'm like, should I take my house key off? No. Always. Well, the best part is, is anyone listening to this, including yourself right now, next time you go to park your car, you will be terrified by the story I just told you. I'll be taking my key off. <laughs> so I love the I Am series. I have two granddaughters now. Ellie has two little girls and I bought the Strong Girls set, which I love. Talk about that series. It's wonderful. And it's huge now. I think you have 50 yeah, plus Yeah, it's books crazy. I mean, it's so funny. I mean, I came to the Barbara Bush, one of the literacy events to do the very first books. I remember we were doing Abraham Lincoln. And so we've done, I am Abraham Lincoln. I am Amelia Earhart. I am Rosa Parks. I am Dr. King. You name it. And I did them because I wanted my own kids to have better heroes to look up to. I was tired of them looking at people who were famous for being famous and thinking that's a hero. I said, I want to give them heroes of kindness and compassion, heroes of confidence and humility, perseverance. And so we started with Amelia Earhart and I am Abraham Lincoln. We've done I am Walt Disney and we've done I am Jane Goodall. And Jane Goodall helped us with that one. And Billie Jean King helped us with I am Billie Jean King. It has just been this amazing thing. And it was so interesting, Dora, when the 2016 election happened, two of our books started selling more than any others. And they were, I am George Washington, and I am Martin Luther King Jr. And it was at a time where Hillary and Donald Trump were yelling at each other every day on television and fighting with each other every day on TV. And those two books, I am George Washington, and I am Dr. King, started selling more than any other. It wasn't a Democrat or Republican thing. It was that parents and grandparents on both sides were tired of turning on the TV and seeing politicians and what they wanted to see were heroes and leaders. And we know, sadly, especially these days, that there's a huge difference between a politician and a leader. And I love the fact that people use our books to fight back against the cynicism we see today in, in politics. They use our books to build libraries of real heroes for their kids and their grandkids and their nieces and their so nephews. Awesome. And we broke the Guinness Book of World Records in Texas. We did a book called I Am Texas with the I Write Charity. We did it all for charity. And kids could submit in Texas. We, it was the Guinness Book of World Records for the world's physically biggest book. The best part of it was we had to put famous Texans on the cover and I put your mom on the cover. They put Barbara Bush on the cover of that one. And I love the fact that we got to honor her. So nice. So it was really fun to do that. I'm sorry, but I've never laughed so hard. Knowing that I was going to speak to you, I wanted to just remember the video you did with mom (laughs) with the book, I Am Lucille Ball. I don't even know if you know the backstory of this. So we had done I Am Lucille Ball was, I think, our sixth book in the series, right? As you said, there's now almost 50 of them. I was coming to do an event for family literacy with your mom, and I knew she was a big Lucy fan because she had said to me, you you know, your mom was so sweet to me. She always, when my mom was dying, I brought my mom to meet your parents at one of the literacy events. She was so nice to my mother. Every time I asked her for a decade after, she would always ask me, how's your mom doing? How's your mom doing? Until my mom passed away. She was just always so caring about that. I knew she loved Lucille Ball, and I knew obviously your mom has the best sense of humor. So I said, you know... I talked to Jean. I said, why don't we do something after where we'll do like a little video where we'll read I Am Lucille Ball and then Mrs. Bush and I will recreate the chocolate conveyor belt scene from I Love Lucy. (laughs) And and I'll eat all the chocolate. I'm going to dress up like Lucille Ball. I said, and she'll read the book and I'll eat all the chocolate. And they said, oh, this is great. Let us clear with the first lady. You got it. We're clear with Mrs. Bush. You know, I'm going to be there no matter what. So I get in the car and they say, oh, she cleared it. She loves it. This is great. We're going to do it. I said, great. I bring the costume in. I bring the wig in. And I get in the car and she looks at me and your mom says to me, so what are we doing today? And I realized in that moment that she has no idea. No one has cleared it with her. No one knows anything. (laughs) And now I'm going, okay. So I go, okay, this is going to sound a little crazy. 
but I have this whole costume. You're going to read this. I'm going to read it. She's like, that sounds funny. Let's do it. Okay. So we go in the office and we recreate and just put in Brad Meltzer and Barbara Bush and Lucille Ball. Put it in YouTube if you're listening now and just watch it. You will laugh. It was all done in one take. There was no practice, no setup, no script. <laughs> Everything was just fully real. And it's one of the funniest moments of my entire life because your mom is the perfect straight man, right? She yes. just never breaks character. And you could hear the staff in the background are literally laughing as we're doing it. And Jean Becker, God bless her, said to me, that was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And she's been with you, obviously, I've been with your parents forever. It winds up being one of those moments where you just capture magic on video. And we had such a ball doing it. I ate about a thousand pieces of chocolate filming it. <laughs> I felt like I could lift a car when it was over, but it's one of the most funny videos ever filmed, I think, for literacy. It was hilarious. And when mom was deadpan, giving you looks and everything. And then at one point she says, are you a nut, basically? Oh, so good. She, <laughs> so yeah, she was so right. It was so hard. There was no script. And whatever I would say, she would just never break character, never be anything but herself, which is, of course, what I loved about her is that she was nothing but ever herself. Writing is obviously a passion for you. And research tells us that when you're doing something you love, you're healthier and happier. So what else do you do to stay healthy? I'm very big into working out. I do think exercise is important for me. It's a huge stress reliever. Nearly every day I try to either get on the treadmill or lift weights or you know do whatever my physical thing is I need to. It, it helps my brain work. It helps everything go. I also get out and walk. I do think getting out and walking is, especially for a writer, You know, the phone only rings when you go into the shower. And so when I'm stuck and I don't know what's next, I just walk outside and walk around and let my brain wander. And, you know, that's me getting in the shower, so to speak. And I think that that's always a good way. And other than that, obviously, you know, my wife and I, we travel, we love to travel, we love keeping up with our kids. And that's the best passion we have of anything. And your mom taught me that. I remember when my kids were born, your mom said to me, this was not her being like the first lady where she had to talk about literacy. She said privately to me, she goes, Brad, you know, she knew I had a newborn. She said, just put that kid on your lap and read to them. I'm going to tell you right now, they're never going to remember the books always that you read to them. They'll never remember all those books you go through, but they will remember, I'll never forget her saying, you with your arms around them and that love you're giving them. And then there's that book and they'll both remember that. And I remember being yes. like, that is wisdom. That's wisdom being given to me as a gift right now. So it was a great gift she gave me. Aww. Well, Brad, you've written so many amazing books, and I'm so happy that we can share your story with our listeners because everybody needs to run out and buy Brad Meltzer's books. They're fabulous. And thank you for telling us how you put them together and just for being with us today and sharing all your wonderful stories. Well, listen, I love the fact that of all the things that I got in my research, and you and I know each other a long time. I remember even with Trish, too, back in the old California tortilla days, like just getting to meet you, you know, those decades ago. And thank you for all the kindness you've shown to me, to my wife, and all that your whole family does. I know people don't realize it, but how much you do for literacy, for health, for all these amazing causes you all have found. It is a uh, it really is a beautiful legacy you've built. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. Have you ever done the Enneagram personality test? What's great about it? 
is that it tells you how you are when you are stressed and also when you are thriving. Conscious Leadership Group has worked with well over a thousand leaders across all industries, including CEOs and top leaders of Fortune 200 companies, and they are looking forward to working with all of us at Gasparilla this year to help you with your testing and also to walk you through how to discover the secret of your personality and its dynamics with the ones you love. Call 877-764-1420 or visit the Gasparilla Inn website at the-gasparilla-inn.com to register for this year's November experience.